Um, as Kenny has said, this is Orphan Sunday, and Marla has said, and it's an opportunity for us again to just remember and bring back to a focus God's heart for the outcast, for the orphan, for the fatherless. If you look in Psalm 68, it says that God is the father of the fatherless, and he sets the lonely in families. And today we get just take an opportunity again to remember that this is the heart of God. This is the heart of God to care for. He reached out and he sought us and he brought us back into his family. And it just gives us an opportunity to remember that. Um, this is very much at the core and DNA of this church. Um, we were a foster and adoptive family before we came to Grace, Grace uh, Church. And, uh, but I, I have said many times uh, at Project Hope and in other settings that there is no way that we would be doing what we're doing right now in terms of my daughter, who is a single young woman, adopting two little guys out of the foster system if it was not for the love and support of uh, the, this church and the people at this church. It is a huge part, and it has been a blessing for us. And one of the things that can happen when you do a Sunday like this where you focus on a particular area of ministry is people can get a little nervous. They can think, well, gee, what is this? It's a recruitment campaign because we need more foster and adoptive families, which is a true situation. We do. The need is great out there. Uh, but that's not what this is about. And let me set you at ease right away. Because I think Scripture teaches, and I, I firmly believe, that not everyone is called to be a foster and adoptive family. God distributes gifts differently. He calls people to different ministries. And so he may or may not be calling you. He doesn't call everybody, but he could be calling you. But regardless of that, we're not off the hook because Scripture clearly tells us that we as a church are to care for the orphan. So how do we do that? How do we do that above and beyond being a foster and adoptive family? And there are many ways that we can do that, and we'll get into that. But I'd like to look this morning at Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. So if you can turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. And we're going to look at three things in that text this morning. First of all, we're going to look at what is it we're called to do. And secondly, how do we accomplish that calling? And then third, what is our motivation? What is uh, it that empowers us uh, to fulfill that calling? Now, Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 is not a text that applies specifically to foster and adoptive families. It's that, and it doesn't apply specifically to defending the or orphan or the fatherless. But it is a text that we could preach from and apply to uh, missions. We could apply it to our families and how we live within our family. We could apply it to our marriages, to our careers. They're all aspects of our Christian life that this text could be applied to. But because this is Defending the Fatherless Sunday, I am going to apply it in that context. So if you have that, let me pray for us and then we'll get started. Father, I thank you so much that you did seek and save us that we were orphans, we were fatherless, and you reached out and brought us back into your family. And I thank you for that, Father. And I pray that you would remind us of that this morning, of how you have drawn us to yourself. And I pray that your spirit would move among us and you would help us see many ways in which we can participate with you in caring for the orphan and the fatherless. Uh, open our eyes to the variety of ways available to us, Father, and help us see how you have called us to do that. In your name we pray. Amen. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. 
In the NIV, it reads, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. What are we called to do? We're called to be imitators of God. Now think about it. Who and what do we imitate? We imitate people we respect, people we, we look up to, people we value, people we want to be like. Um, if you have kids, you know that kids learn greatly through imitation. And most of the time, they imitate us, their parents. And that can bring us either great joy and delight, or it can bring us great horror, right? Depending on what quality of ours they choose to imitate. Um, kids also imitate their sports stars. They want to swing the bat like their favorite major league player or dribble or shoot like their favorite NBA star. Or even in the college ranks, you see imitation, especially this time of year. If you see, we'll pick on some of the elite running backs in the league, and they make a great run and they score a touchdown, and before they start their end zone celebration, they strike a pose and they imitate the Heisman Trophy. Why? Because they want you to see that what you just saw on the field resembles that. They want you to see the connection between what they just did and the Heisman because they feel they're worthy of that award. We imitate all kinds of things. But the scripture doesn't call us just to imitate anybody or anything. It tells us that we are to imitate God. We are to be imitators of God. Now that should blow our minds to a certain extent. How is it that I, a physical finite, fallen, sinful, yet redeemed human can imitate an infinite spirit, all-loving, all-powerful, gracious, just, righteous, keep the attributes going, God. How am I supposed to accomplish that calling? Well, the text goes on and it tells us how we're to accomplish the calling. We are to live a life of love, just as Christ loved us. He is our example, and we are now to live a life of love as he has loved us. Well, if I'm going to live a life of love the way Christ has loved us, then I need to understand what Christ's love for us is. Have you ever tried to ponder the depth of God's love? You ever tried to ponder that? Um, when I was a, a junior higher, so late, excuse me, early 70s, when I was in junior high, and so you're at the getting near the end of the Vietnam War, you've got the hippies, you've got the sexual revolution, oh yeah, and you've got free love. They knew what love was, right? You wanna know what the definition of love was that I remember from that era of time? Love, yeah, there's that one too. But love is a feeling you feel when you feel a feeling you feel you've never felt before. That's love. And while you can uh, go do your sentence diagram on that statement and syntactically tear it apart, and it does make sense, it is an absolutely vacuous statement. It is empty. In fact, in the recent years, I will tell you that as I've gotten older, I have felt all kinds of feelings in these recent years, and I know I have never felt them before, and I can guarantee you they are not love. <laughs> okay? As you get older, you will realize that. So what is love? How does the scripture tell us what love is? How does the scripture spell love? The scripture spells love in a lot of places. G-A-V-E. 
says, live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. We will see this all throughout Scripture. In the New Testament, here's a variety of passages where you will see the concept of love gave. Love gave. John 15, 13. There's no greater love that a man has than he'd lay down his life for a brother. Right? 1 Timothy 2, 5, and 6 picks up where Scott left off this morning. There is one God and one mediator between God and man. That man, Jesus Christ, who gave his life as a ransom for mankind. That's the verse that was preached when I accepted Christ at Green Oaks Boys Ranch Camp. How about uh, Romans 5, 8? Most of us know that. Um, And I blanked on it right away. Right? God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Love and gave. We see that repeatedly. And what Paul says is, what did he give? What did Jesus give us if we're going to imitate that kind of giving? He gave his all. He refers to it, he says, he gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Paul's alluding back to the Old Testament sacrificial system where the spotless lamb is placed on the altar as a sacrifice. Sacrifice implies slain. It implies being killed. And the sacrifice was made. And it says in Leviticus and Exodus, when you read that the the sacrificial lamb or the ram were burnt on the offering, that it was a pleasing aroma to God. And so Christ gave his all, and it was a sweet-smelling aroma to God. And another thing about his giving, he gave so that we might have. If you take John 3.16 and just summarize it down to its core components, it goes like this. For God so loved that he gave that we might have. And what was it he gave that we might have? Was it just anything? He's just giving us anything, and he does bless us with many things? But his giving that Paul's referring to in this particular passage is he not only gave that we might have, he gave that we might have what we needed. We needed to be ransomed. We needed to be rescued. We needed to be restored. We needed to be brought back into the family. That's what we needed. He gave us what we needed. So we are called to be imitators of God. We accomplish that call by living a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. But what motivates us? What is it that empowers us to be able to do that? Do I just have to kind of come up on my own and muster up enough love to be able to love people that I don't know or maybe even don't like? You know, is it of my own effort that I have to do that? No. The second phrase in this text says, live a life of, excuse me, be imitators of God as dearly loved children. It says, we are dearly loved children. Now, if you remember back this summer in the Habits of Grace series, I believe Eric Twisselman, when he spoke on the habit of prayer, he mentioned that all prayer is secondary speech because God spoke first, Right? Well, folks, all love is secondary love because God loved first. 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. 
So how do we motivate? What empowers us to be able to live a life of love like that? We bask in the love of God. We try to understand the love of God. We soak it up, and we become a conduit through which that love just pours through us out to other people. It's not something we have to conjure up. And I think Paul understood that we might have a hard time understanding God's love. Because if you flip back two chapters in his prayer at the end of of Ephesians 3, he says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, think about that phrase for a little bit. But he continues on later and he says, and I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints. Power to do what? to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ, that you may know this love that surpasses knowledge. See, Paul says, I just pray that you would have the power to grasp the girth of God's love, the fullness of God's love that fills us. And when we understand that love, we can just be a conduit that that love flows through us to others. But we're not just dearly loved. We're dearly loved children. We have identity. We have a placement in the family, a belonging. As you have already heard this morning, we are children. We are sons of the king. He is our Abba Father. We have intimate relationship with him. And because of that, and because we are members of the family, we have rights, privileges, and access to things that we don't when we're outside the family. If you just go back through Ephesians 1 and 2 and just look through that, those, those passages, you will see what we've been given, what we are, and what we have access to. And it's something like this. We are blessed. We are chosen. We are adopted. We are redeemed and forgiven. We have been lavished with God's grace, wisdom, and understanding. We have received the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation. We are marked. We have the Holy Spirit. We have a guaranteed and rich inheritance. We have been given the ability to know him better. We have hope. We are called. We have been given his great power. We have We are Christ-filled. We are seated with Christ. We are saved by grace through faith. We are God's workmanship. We are created to do good works. We were dead. We were now alive. We were objects of wrath. We are now included in Christ. We were excluded, foreigners, aliens, without hope and without God. And now we are citizens and members of God's family. Amen? We have an identity in Christ. And that is what empowers us to live a life of love in fulfillment of being imitators of God. Now, how do we apply that to caring for the fatherless and the orphan? You know what the biggest difference is between me being a spiritual orphan, fatherless, needing to be adopted by God back into his family, and a child who is an earthly orphan and fatherless? You know what the biggest difference is? It's not his fault. See, I'm a spiritual orphan because I shook my fist at God and I walked out and said, I can do it better on my own. I walked away from God. We walked out of his family. We chose to do that. For the child who's an orphan, 
and fatherless. It is because of war and disease and famine and abuse and neglect that they are fatherless. They have either watched their parents die or be killed. They have been abandoned by their parents. Or in some cases, they have been taken away from their parents. And because of all of those ways in which they become fatherless are very traumatic, it can have a great deal of effect on a child and traumatize them significantly to the point that they will experience things like PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. They'll have abandonment issues. They'll have attachment issues. They'll have identity issues. They'll have trust issues. And these things don't just go away when a loving family comes and brings them into their home and makes them a member of their family. These things take time to work through. And in some cases, they'll work through them for a lifetime. It can mark them for a lifetime. So how do we um, step into that? And how can we be a part of caring for them? Two things. First of all, um, we, we tend to diminish um, roles and ways in which we can, we can help in these situations. And I just like to say the simple phrase, and you'll hear, hear it throughout later what I talk about of things people have done for us. But I want you to know small things are big things. Okay, remember that. Small things are big things. Because there are times when what we do is we say, well, I can't imitate God just as Christ because I'm just a... I'm just a Sunday school teacher. I'm just a nursery worker. I'm just a grace group member. I'm just a friend of the family. I'm just a, and we diminish what we do. And we don't understand the impact of those areas that, uh, uh, to helping people who are maybe being the foster and adoptive family, who are maybe in the trenches a little bit more. Let me give you some examples. When you have a child who has experienced trauma, attachment, abandonment issues, and we come to church on a Sunday morning, and we walk over to your kids' rooms, and as our little guy who has never been in that room has done, and he runs into the room, and you have created a safe and loving and caring and nurturing environment for him, and you teach him the Bible, and you read scripture to him, and you pray over him, so that their moms and dads can come and sit in here and they can be nourished and filled up and blessed and strengthened because they've got a war to face in the week ahead and they need to be strengthened for it. You're not just a Sunday school worker, folks. You're defending the fatherless. And that is a huge and vital ministry. When you're a, a small group leader, high school, junior high, and you have a student in your small group who's from an adoptive, is in an adoptive family. And you may say, well, they've been adopted for 10, 12, 13, 14 years. This is, this is just routine for them. This is normal, right? It's not an issue. But if you understand that most and many of the kids who are adopted between junior high and college will go through some type of identity crisis. Who am I? What happened? And they have all kinds of questions. And in many cases, those questions cannot be answered. As in our daughter's case, when we adopted our daughter, her mom was dead. The questions she has of her mom, she cannot get answered. But when they face that identity, if you can help 
come around them and love them and point them to their identity in Christ and what they have in Christ and show them how that has been modeled, their adoption in Christ has been modeled in their family and their identity in their family and you can help love them and walk them through that identity crisis. Folks, you're not just a small group leader. You're defending the fatherless and it's a big thing. If you're a friend of the family or you're in a grace group with somebody who's a fostered adoptive family and you get on the floor and you play with the kids and you get out in the backyard and you throw a ball and you just play with them and get to know them and love them to the point where you could even babysit for them. And you could come over to the house because mom or dad have reports to fill out for court or phone calls to make and things to do and they can't do it while, the kids were the, while they're having to care for the kids. We have two families in our life that we have known long before we started to adopt. And, uh, but they have just rallied around us in big ways in these last two or three years to where they know our kids and our kids, the little ones, just love it when they come over and can spend time with them and love it when they can see them at church. And it's not just the parents, it's the kids, the junior hires, the high schoolers, the middle-aged uh, junior kids that all have gotten into a part of this, and they're big brothers and big sisters and aunts and uncles to our kids. And they're people who, when we get into a bind and because of requirements of, of fostering, say, hey, we, we need to have somebody come now and watch one of the kids, or can we bring them to your house? They're right there for us. You know, you're not just being a grace group member and a friend of the family. You are defending the fatherless, and we can't do it without the support of people like that. It's significant, and it's huge. If you're a person who has texted us, you know, God's just put you on my heart. I don't know what's going on in your life. I just want you to know I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you. Most of the time when we receive text or emails like that, there's usually something significant going on. Usually is, and you can get in touch with them and say, hey, this is what's happening. Thank you so much for lifting us up in prayer. You know, you're just not a person who's just a member of the church. I'm just doing my prayer time. No, you're defending the fatherless. And it's a big thing. But you have to be careful when you get involved in defending the fatherless in those ways. Because you may have happened to you what happened to us. See, for some couples, uh, many times, what can happen is one spouse is all on board, let's go do this, and the other spouse is like, eh, I don't know. When Renee and I got married, she's a, Renee's a carrier of hemophilia. It's a bleeding disorder. Women carry it, men have it. Her grandfather had it severely. But Renee has the, the carrier of it so badly that they were afraid she would bleed to death in childbirth. And so when we were dating and getting married, uh, they told us, you know, that probably wouldn't be a good idea to have your own children. And then they learned new information in those years and found out that it was okay, so we ended up having two girls. And uh, we kind of stopped at that point because Renee said, I just, I don't feel like we're... we're kind of pushing our luck a little bit here, and we need to stop. And So we thought, okay, we had originally planned on adopting kids. We'll go ahead and, and, and adopt the rest of our kids. And, you know, you get out of diapers, and you get out of strollers, and life gets comfortable, and you move along, and it's like, uh, okay, we don't need to mess up what's going on right now. She'd have done it in a heartbeat. I was like, this is comfortable, this is nice, let's not mess it up, let's keep going. And so we did, until our kids were full-grown. And then I had an experience that I can relate to Paul's. And it's a passage in Galatians 1 
where Paul is talking to the Galatian church and he tells him, you know, you know of my former life in Judaism. He says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. See, my course in life was set. I knew what I was doing. I was good at it. I was advancing at it. My career, everything was going on track the way we had planned. And then Paul describes the Damascus Road experience with three words. But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace. September 26, 2009, we were on vacation in San Diego, walking along a beach. We were talking, and Kirsty has been talking about maybe fostering and adopting, and we were having the dialogue, and we went back to the condo, and we were looking at some stuff online, dangerous, don't do that, um, it'll get you. And we're in tears reading this, and Renee and I both had the exact same thought. And we turned and communicated it to each other, and it was, we could do this. And when we're both on the same page like that, I know that God's calling us to do it. And I looked back at her and said, then let's do it. And Kirstie didn't want to look at me. Her eyeballs were about this big around. Her jaw hit the table. And she was going, I could not believe you said that. Dad is willing to foster and adopt. And God just moved my heart to say, I have to do something. He's blessed us. I've got to do something. So we came back and we signed up. April the next year, we met our daughter. Um, and she was adopted by December of that following year, 2010, one week before her 16th birthday. And then we proceeded to walk into two of the most painful years of our life. Because, folks, I don't want to tell you, and I don't want to paint some rosy picture for you. Oh, adoption is redemption, but it's painful. It is hard. Listen to this quote. I can find it here. My friends, adoption is redemption. It's costly, exhausting, expensive, and outrageous. Buying back lives costs so much. When God set out to redeem us, it killed him. And it was two of the hardest years of our life. She turned 18 and she said she was going to do it, and she did. She left, and we entered a year and a half of of just a strained relationship, not seeing each other very much, not communicating very much. And then uh, God started to work uh, and started bringing our relationship back together. She's now married. She has one child who's a year old. She's expecting her second child in the middle of next year. She is over all the time. She is calling all the time and texting all the time. And the biggest thing I could communicate to you of what she did in, in this redemptive process is we went to, uh, we were going to go on a vacation as a family last summer, go camping. And so I sent out a text, just planning text. And I figured I'm not just going to send it to the three girls. I'm going to send it to their husbands and everybody that's involved in this trip because it was going to be a family trip. So I sent the text out. And Pamela replied back to me, and she didn't say anything about the text. In fact, she said nothing. What my text on the phone came back and said was, Pamela has renamed the group Doctorman Family. See, she had a place and a belonging. It took her six years to get to that point of understanding, this is your family. I can't tell you, you think that's a small thing? No, that's a huge thing. 
That is a really big thing. And I cannot tell you what that did to me and does to me today of realizing that she has gotten to that point of, no, you're my family now. I have identity and belonging here. Well, the year after Pamela left, when she was out, we took some time to re, kind of recover. And uh, we, one of the things we learned about during our two years with her was we learned a lot about attachment disorder. A lot about of attachment disorder. And one of the things we learned is that attachment disorder sets in on a child in the first three to four months of life when they are not nurtured, loved, held, cared for, protected. Something flips in their brain. And they can say, I don't trust you big people. And that can linger with them for life. For life. And so we said, well, we've seen the ramifications of it. Let's, let's recertify and go back and just hold babies. Let's go back and just hold babies. We can help them to not have that. So that when they go to another family, they can know how to attach. They can be loved. They can know what that feels like. So we did. And actually, my daughter came to us, uh, Kirsty, my oldest daughter, who's here this morning. And she said, well, you know what? I'm done with college. I'm still living at home. And uh, why don't you let me certify? And I'll be the adoptive mom. And you guys play grandma and grandpa. I thought, cool. I don't have to get up in the middle of the night. You can take care of getting up in the middle of the night, right? Of course, Renee's sitting over there going, you never got up in the middle of the night. So what are you talking about? So Kirsty certified. October 3rd, 2013, she gets the phone call. Your certification is complete. And we'd like to bring you a little two-month-old boy this afternoon if you're available. She says, well, this is what we asked for. This is what we, we said we'd do. And so little man came into our life. And a month later, the social worker came to us and said, you know, it looks like this case is going to adoption and you're just certified as a foster family. Are you interested in adopting him? Thousand questions come up. <laughs> Single, young, financial, you know, just all kinds of questions came up. Social worker left. We started discussing it a little bit. What do we need to look at? What do we need to think about? What do we need to pray about? Who do we need to talk to to make this decision? And uh, I had to go to work, so I walked out. Kirsty said to me a week ago, she said, do you remember what you said to me when you walked out the door that morning? I said, no, I don't. She said, you said, but when God. And she had a course correction for her life that changed where she would say, okay, I'll, I'll, he doesn't need another home. And I may not be able to give him the riches of this world, and I may not be able to travel the world with him, but I can teach him about Jesus. And what he needs more than anything else is Jesus. So I'll take him. And she had a course correction in her life. Over the next year, she received a couple phone calls for other kids, and, and she has some constraints and criteria upon which she you know, has to make this decision, and, and we use that as a filter of whether uh, it's a, a child that we should take or not, and it's an appropriate thing to do. But on October um, 25th, 2014, she gets a phone call, and this is how the call went. We have a safe surrender baby. Left at a fire station, ring the doorbell, run. So we have no name. We think he's about a week old. He's either full Chinese or he has Down syndrome. And he's got an extra thumb on his right hand. He's got two thumbs. And there's nothing else to ask him because they've already told you everything they know. So the only question she could ask was, well, how long do I have to give you an answer? And they replied, 20 minutes. 
20 minutes, which is why you have filters and things like that to be able to work through. Renee was gone, so we got on the phone with Renee real quick, and we made a phone call, and we talked, and just real quick, what do we do? How do we do? And we came with this conclusion. We've got little man. We've got to do what's in the best interest of him. Don't know what this is going to be. Special needs, God? We don't know what's going to involve there. Tell you what, we'll sign up for 30 days. We'll commit for 30 days, and let's see how it goes. And, and on October 25th, Littlest came into our life. And uh, that little bugger wormed his way into our hearts. He is full Chinese. He is down. He does have downs. Special needs. But when God, we didn't sign up for special needs. But he doesn't need to go anywhere else. Again, he needs Jesus more than anything. And so now she's got two little guys. The older one, we're hoping final adoption will come January. This little one, hopefully his final adoption, we're just waiting for the court date. It could be in the next three to four weeks. We, we are just waiting for them to tell us what the date is. And those two little guys will be adopted in our family. May 15th, last year, this year, 2016, my middle daughter got married on May 14th. So they are over at our house. We're getting ready to take them to the airport for their honeymoon. We're, we're remembering the wedding and kind of reviewing it. And my wife gets a phone call, and it's a very strange-sounding phone call. And uh, she gets off the phone, and I say, what, what's going on there? She says, well, it's a long family chain, but there's a connection to us. And this grandma of this child who has been detained because she's a meth baby has called my daughter and said, will you ask your parents to take this child? And I kind of went, God, our quiver's full. <laughs> we don't have room for any more. How many more creative ways can you get, God, to get children to us? Live a life of love, just as Christ loved us. So what am I supposed to do? What are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to say no? No, we won't take that child. So on May 15th, Little Miss came into our life. And uh, she is a meth baby. And the ramifications of that are yet to still be seen. Um, a month after she came to us, a social worker told us there was an extended family member that wants the child, and we're going to move the child. And we had her for one month, and two months, and three months, and four months, and it seemed like maybe that wasn't going to happen, and they were going to end up leaving her with us, and we were more than willing to adopt her. And October 13th, just a week before, actually a week before that, a week before her fifth month with us, they ended up moving her to this extended uh, relative. And it's painful, and it's hard, and I wouldn't be surprised if she is. Renee's in tears up here seeing that picture because she cared for her almost every day. And you may question, and we go, why, God? Why did you do this? Why did you bring this little girl into our lives only to have her pulled away? I said, I know why. Why did we recertify? We recertified because attachment disorder happens in the first three to four months of life, and if we can love and nurture and care for a little child and help them to attach, they will attach to other people appropriately. We got five months with her. This little girl could attach. And she's able to transition to another family, and she's able to attach to her mom. 
and it's painful and it's hard, but folks, that's living a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We're going to see a video this morning. No, I have one more thing before the video. Sorry, I have a myth I need to dispel. And you can show that last picture if you want. There's a, a, a myth, and sometimes you will hear this, and I, I've just got to address it quickly. I could never love somebody else's child like I would love my own biological child. Okay? That's a myth we hear. Sometimes people will use that to keep them from fostering and adopting and loving a child. I could never love somebody else's child as much as I would love my own biological child. Now, let me sarcastically, if I may, kind of quench that myth for you. If you are married, is your spouse biological or from another family? <laughs> now, I would hope well, first of all, I would hope they're from another family, okay? But secondly, I would hope that your spouse is the most dearly loved person on this earth to you. Don't ever let anybody tell you you cannot love someone from another family because they are not biological. Be imitators of God as dearly loved children and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God.